Hey everybody, I'm Greg Soule and this is Why Am I? A podcast where I get to talk to interesting people to try and trace a path to where they find themselves today. My guest this go around is Brian Brewer. Brian and I go way back. We used to work together in the early 2000s. Man, that is a long time ago. He's one of the most introspective folks I've met, but like most folks, growth came at a price. Or perhaps more accurately, growth came as a result of paying a price. I, uh, I tell you what, if you ever meet Brian, I want you to ask him about his El Paso story. Uh, it's pretty amazing. At any rate, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Brian. Brian Brewer, thank you for joining me on the YMI podcast. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, man. So you and I go way back. We go, uh, yeah. we jump in the way back machine to, I think like 2002. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. It's, uh, I started just before the year 2000 problem, just before, uh, the 2000, uh, uh, what new year's, uh, creaky old brain. But, uh, and then, so whenever you started is when we met. Essentially. Yeah. So when we you started each other. at UCS. Yeah. For a long, long time, long time. And I haven't wow. talked to you for quite a while. Yeah. It's probably been like 10 years since I've. Yeah. Hired. It's been since you left Reynolds way in the back, way in the, in the way back machine. So. All right. Well, thanks again for my job, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I know I keep saying that, but I really like my job. No, that's awesome, man. That's what we're here to do. We're uh, here to liberate each other from uh, the that's bonds right. of UCS. <laughs> as it there were. you go. There All right. You go. Well, for the guides of this conversation, you and I are strangers for the, this That's moment. Right. We're strangers. That's right. Never met each other. We're standing in line at Baskin Robbins and uh, <laughs> somebody is tasting every one of the 31 flavors. So it's taking a little bit of time. So we start I'm a, I'm a little busy <laughs> having the conversation and, uh, you know, I tell you who I am and kind of what I do now it's your turn to reciprocate, Brian. So who are you, man? Uh, that's a difficult question. I'm it still kind of trying to process that one myself, you know, even at, uh, well, almost 59 in a couple months, you know, it's just, I really look at that as like a lifetime goal for humans to figure out who you are. Um, I would just say I'm a human. Uh, I know that's not an exciting thing and it's not unique and it's not different to anybody else, but that's pretty much uh, how I ID myself now. I don't know. I've never had anybody say that they were a human. So I would say that's pretty unique response. I work uh, as a telecom engineer, as you, you're aware, and uh, <laughs> work for a large corporation, just kind of make sure the calls keep flowing and the presence keeps on and uh, that people can IM with each other. But, uh, you know, that's just what I do. It's kind of like a Monday through Friday gig and try to leave it at the office when I leave the office and keep on trucking with my life. <laughs> I like how you said that. That's just what I do, not who I am. Mm -hmm. I think some people get, um, they get who they are so intertwined with what they do that they can't separate the two. So I think that's, I mean, it's really instantly clear delineation you made. It's, re it's really difficult as you move through life to and you kind of initially, you know, cause you're learning who you are and you tend to tag yourself with artificial tags and say, I'm this, I'm that, you know, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, I'm whatever. And then I think you hopefully hit a time in your life where you're just like, those tags are burdensome. And uh, I kind of hit that probably at least like a decade or 20 years ago. And I've been trying to drop them. And 
So I do have some things I define myself as, but not really that I would just like laundry list, I guess. And, mm-hmm. and uh, that's like handcuffs, you know, I've got handcuffs on. Well, yeah, you got handcuffs on and that kind of makes you a handcuffed man, but you, they also hinder you. You can't move your arms around very much. So I kind of see labels like that. I'm not anti-label. I don't sit there and point and laugh at people that label themselves. I just kind of try to not do that. Why do you think we tag ourselves to begin with? I think it's the part of the part of the way that our human minds work, uh, like logically. And I, I'm not saying that everybody like strictly uh, thinks logically. What I'm saying is that. It, there's a rare, very strong tendency as humans to uh, like kind of think by saying this or that. I'm either this or I'm either this. Like and you make a dividing line and mm-hmm. a lot of times it's artificial. You know, you've heard the old saying that it's not black and white. It's a bunch of shades of gray in between. Mm-hmm. Well, we kind of ignore that uh, shades of gray. And obviously we've seen a lot of that in the political spectrum recently, the last you know, seven years or so. <laughs> and you make that line in the sand and you say, I'm on this side or I'm on that side. That's all there is to it. And, you know, it's either me or, or us or them. And I think that we mainly do that just to, just as a part of our rationalizing as humans, but that's not reality. The reality is that every person on this planet, including myself and including you are a thousand different little points of things that are moving around and, probably changing at any given moment. So uh, though it's a human tendency, it's probably not really realistic if you think about it. Mm. So something you mentioned, um, like how we label ourselves, like, you know, Republican or Democrat or whatever happens mm-hmm. to be. I've always kind of wondered, do people do that to kind of make themselves feel like part of something, like part of a group? Yeah. You know, yeah, like, exactly. I guess maybe as we move away from religion a little bit, you know, yeah. people are trying to define who their tribe is, maybe. Who they are. Yeah, exactly. Tribe. That's a great word. And, and uh, you know, humans are gregarious. I mean, I, I trumpet to the world that I'm kind of a loner, but, uh, but humans, you know, like to be with other humans. They like to belong to something. They like to be part of the troop or the tribe. It's a perfect word for it. And, you know, so in order to do that, you need some identifying uh, features. Like back in the day, you know, old tribal uh, prehistory I'm talking about, like tribal, uh, a lot of tribal societies, you know, you'll get marked. Uh, some will actually scar themselves in, hmm. in marks or the Maoris in uh, New Zealand, you know, they tattoo patterns on their skin to mark themselves as part of that tribe. And maybe, like you said, since we're losing you know, some of the main societal influences that have been around forever, like religion and stuff maybe we're all looking for that kind of marking that identifies us as part of that tribe like um i kind of like punk so i've got doc martens on i don't know if doc martens are still punk. <laughs> they're in the mall now but <laughs> i think you'd be a hipster now bud yeah <laughs> i don't know what i am now to tell you the truth <laughs> yeah no, I mean, I... my top knot <laughs> <laughs> i like how you were like, so I'm a very visual person. So when somebody describes something visually, man, that really clicks with me. So the idea that you said, you know, that tags or labels are something that bind you sometimes, you know, that hold you down, that kind of anchor you in place. And if you can't shed those things, you can't uh, grow. And t- oh, you know what? Shed this. I, I heard um, 
a Nietzsche saying, I think it was yesterday, something like, you know, if a shake, if a snake couldn't shed its skin, it would die. And something similar to the way a human mind needs to also be able to shed parts of itself to continue to grow and flourish. I found that to be, again, very visual, but also really representative of how I kind of feel. And like, I, it seems very apropos, like you have to be yeah. able to examine those tags or labels and maybe let those and we do go. that and we do that as we move through life i think i mean really i don't know about you but i don't identify at all with who i was when i was 30. And, i'm not even close you know, like, not even remotely that close. kid back there that went to the beach every day and you know, he's 14 years old with a bodyboard i envy him i was like wow that was a great time in my life but you know I, as far as what he thought and what he believed i'm sure i would argue with him I wouldn't argue with him because everybody's entitled to their opinion, but I, I don't think that I would have a lot in common with that, you know, child. I probably don't have a lot in common with the guy I'm going to be 10 years. So I think, you know, that's that shedding snake shedding its skin, which it does cyclically, like maybe once or twice a year. That's a great analogy because it's we cast it off. We leave it there and just go on with our fresh new skin. And we probably do that in our entire lives to a certain extent, hopefully. You know, there's uh, there's a tendency as well to become stagnant and not be able to change. And that's really something that I've realized as I've gotten older to be guarded against, not to, you know, be to be immune to changing like that. That's that could be really dangerous because, you know, and again, those tags like I love the what you said about anchor. Well, the anchor can be great. It can hold you in place. It can stop you from falling off a cliff or something, but it can also bind you so you can't move in place. So it, like any other tool, it's got its good points and its bad points. So mm-hmm. That's a great analogy of just an anchor. You know, you got a tag. This is where I stand. This is my flag. But yeah, you got to stand by that flag. You can't walk yeah. away. Yeah. And I mean, to further the anchor analogy, you know, the 500 feet in all directions is all you'll ever know. That's mm-hmm. all you'll ever be able to see, right? You're you never, see. Yeah, you're exactly. never going to be able to experience like yeah. all of these amazing, interesting things, like these, all these other cultures and viewpoints. If you're just so stagnant in the place you yeah. are, it just to and me, it seems the or- criminal. And you said the origin of that quote was Nietzsche and, you know, the existentialists, I can never pronounce it correctly, but I think one of their gigs, one of their points was that life does not have inherent meaning and you have to find that meaning for yourself. And I bet that he would be against, you know, like tagging yourself like that for that reason that, you know, it's, it's just for you. It's just like a, an internal reference point. And if you keep that in mind, just go, Hey, it's just for me. It's just how I you know, I define myself, but no, it means nothing to anybody else. I kind of feel that way about my opinion. Now that's, <laughs> if you look back on, I know we're Facebook friends, but if you look back, like, I don't know, even as recently as like four or five years ago, you'll find my page full of opinions, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> this is what I think about, blah, blah, blah. And I actively try to avoid doing that. And, and even when I do, I'm not saying I'm good by doing this or anything. It's more it's more for myself. But um, I, I, I label now, I say A-S- Oh, or something like that. Another stupid opinion. It's just, you know, I, I avoid taking an opinionated stance because really it's just my own opinion. You know, it's not, it doesn't mean anything. It's as valid as the other 7 billion that we have floating around this planet right now. So <laughs> that's about the worth that I get right now. 
I heard somebody say oh. one time that facts are boring. Opinion is interesting. It, it is interesting because facts, facts, when you think about it, are something that are def strictly defined. Otherwise, they wouldn't be facts. And there's something that, you know, you could maybe prove to somebody else. Look, you know, this is there are 38 grapes in this box or you know, some crazy thing like that. But an opinion is it's just that other person's. And so you're also, you know, just like your questions, you're kind of learning about that person. You learn their opinions. That's why I don't, you know, mind hearing somebody's opinion now, even if it totally goes against what I believe or what I think in my own self opinion is that, you know, I, I just like hearing about it because it's interesting. It's like yeah. you're reading a book, but that book is in a, a, a different person. <laughs> yeah. It's fascinating to me, especially, you know, if, you and I both read a fact and we both have our own opinions based on that. And yours is wildly different than mine, or even yeah. if it's subtly different, that fascinates me because it makes me wonder what's the little pieces of logic you followed to get there or what things in your life led you to that conclusion. You know I mean? That's completely. those are the pieces that really fascinate me. I think ultimately completely. I always, and what you said, you know, that it might be the same fact, but we have a different opinion about it. I always think when I think of that, uh, of the Sierras or some of the mountain ranges that face the Pacific. And my dad used to take me hiking all the time. I used to go back backpacking when I was a kid quite a bit. But uh, if you're on the coastal side, all that coastal moisture is flowing in. It's just, uh, you know, it's pine trees and running streams and snow in the wintertime, et cetera. But if you go to the other side of that exact same mountain range, that mountain range is actually blocking moisture. It's desert, dry cliffs, and hmm. you know, maybe you'll have some pines way the heck up in the, the very uh, high elevations to enough to where some of that moisture comes over. But my only point is somebody could be sitting there in the desert and they could be going, look at that mountain. It's a bunch of cliffs and boy, it's dry up there. And then somebody's standing on the other side and they're like, look at all those beautiful pine trees on this mountain and look at all that running water and snow. And they might argue about that, you know, no, this mountain is this, this mountain is this, but they're both looking at the same mountain. They're just looking at it from two different perspectives. And that's something I try to kind of keep in mind when I hear somebody that, that has a totally different opinion than mine, because, you know, a lot of times, like you said, it's, it's a matter of perspective. It's where that person's standing in that, again, that million and one things that they've gone through in their life that I have not experienced, that I wasn't privy to or it didn't happen. So how can I possibly judge that? Because I'm judging their entire life. I'm judging, you know, the 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 life that they've lived until now. That's not really my right. <laughs> yeah, I I feel like in the times we live, facts are very malleable now. <laughs> you know, yes. you know, what seems to be perfectly obvious is up for contention these days sometimes and gotcha. Um, yeah. So people's interpretation true. of those things are um, pretty important, but I think you're right. Perspective is everything. Yeah. You know, it's like exactly where you're standing uh, dictates so much of uh, what you see around you, you know, like um, how you grew up, how much money your family had or how little money your family had. Not much. <laughs> yeah. Not much. A lot of love, but not much yeah. money. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's where we were. I mean, lived lean and you yeah. know, it, it definitely, um, colors the way I look at the world still, you know, yeah. whether I want to or not, no matter how much I work to change that, it's part of me. It's part of my DNA yeah. at this point. I'm making exactly. changes slowly, 
maybe I'm like the Titanic so slow. I can't get out of the way of the iceberg, but I like to think that maybe eventually I, I will avoid it. I gotcha. Time will tell. So you were talking about your 14 year old self. Do you think your uh, 58 year old self could have a conversation with your 14 year old self? Would he, would he listen at all? I don't, to be honest, uh, and my sister has accused me of this, uh, who knows me best, obviously, my younger, my older sister and my brother as well, although he came along 10 years behind me. So he was more like the, the baby of the family. But my sister has always said, you've always been a deep thinker. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but uh, maybe I would be able to have a discussion with my 14-year-old self, but... I don't think I, he was incredibly naive. I know that. And uh, just kind of thought the world, as all 14 year olds do, I'm sure, thought that the world revolved around him. So I would have to take that into account. Um, <laughs> did, I think he, I, did, yeah. he, did he have everything figured out? He knew everything? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. What do I need school for? You know, it's like, I don't need school. I just, I read a lot. And that's teaches me everything that I need uh, to know. So is that <laughs> your way of saying you weren't a very good student? Oh, it's horrible student. It's <laughs> horrendous. I drove my dad basically insane because, you know, it's, uh, I don't think there was a question about native intelligence and I just read like nobody's business. Uh, I rarely met anybody that's that read as much when I was younger as myself. My dad, that's all for, thanks to my dad. My dad taught me to read when I was three mm. and never, never stopped. But uh, when I got older, I really realized that there was huge gaps due to that in my education. And I tried to go around like my self-education, because that's basically what it was, trying to go around and plugging those holes was not always fun. Yeah, there's some funny stories about that. But uh, uh yeah, my dad was pretty frustrated, I think. And I apologized to him. <laughs> hey, I'm sorry. You know, I just didn't, school wasn't my thing. You know, so. Fair enough. <laughs> Were you apologizing at the time, saying school's not my thing? Oh, oh, no, not at all. I was very, very <laughs> defiant. And, you know, we butted heads for a long time. And it wasn't his side. Uh, it was my side because I was so naive and just didn't understand what he was going through. You know, I was so self-centered and stuff. And he... Yeah, he just wanted better for me and he wanted me to do better, but I was like on my whole planet. So, uh, one time he came home, it was a, this is a story that people, I tell it to people. Yeah. If you ever have a story that, that you go to a party, right? Everybody's telling a story and Brian Reagan, uh, a comedian does this in one of his, uh, bits. He says, how great would it be to walk on the moon? And the reason he said is not because of the actual thing that you walked on the moon. It's that you could be at this party and everybody's like one up in themselves and stuff about, yeah, I got a Ferrari and yeah, this, and then he said, he's just like nodding like, yeah. And then he goes, I walked on the moon. He's going to beat that story. So this is like one of the stories that I trot out. And I, I think I have fortunately thanked my dad for it. One of the stories I tr trot out when stuff like that is happening. Um, my dad sent me to El Paso when I was 14 on the, on the Greyhound bus. Woof. And everybody goes, wow. Yeah, everybody goes, wow, that's a boring place. And 
But then they, then I tell them the punchline story. We didn't know anybody in El Paso. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> he, just, he just stuck me. He came home. I was ditching school. I'd probably ditch for like two weeks straight. I'd wait until my parents left because they both work. And, you know, then I'd kick, chill and watch TV all day and stuff. And he came home and he had had enough. He was like, get your backpack. You're going to El Paso. <laughs> stuck me on a Greyhound and off I went to El Paso. Because you were living kind of, in California, right? Yeah, I was in uh, Huntington Beach, California at the time. Not, That's not a exactly long El bus ride, isn't it? Yeah, it was uh, over 24 hours. <laughs> and uh, got off the bus, and he gave me a little money along with a letter that said <laughs> that he gave me permission to travel around the United States. And so I got off the bus. I'm like, what do I do? And yeah, obviously, bus stations aren't in the best parts of the city. Yeah. So I just walked down the street and found like a little flop house hotel. And for some reason, they rented a room to a kid that was 14 years old, hung out there and had some crazy adventures. And then uh, my mom, World War III obviously was going on at home because my mom didn't know that. (laughs) You know, you get home from work, you've had a trying day. And where's Brian? I put him on a bus to El Paso. So that was going on at home, and eventually uh, my mom got in the phone and got me a ticket back. And so, yeah, how, long, kind of a, how long were you in El Paso? I think I was probably there. It seemed like weeks, but I was probably there only like five or six days. But, uh, yeah, just kind of hanging out. I went into Mexico, into Juarez, Mexico. Whoa. It wasn't quite the, yeah, it wasn't quite the murder zone you know, back then it is now. I walked over there, got lost. Cause I came back into a different part of El Paso, uh, you know, at 14 hadn't written down where my hotel, what an address was. So I walked <laughs> around, finally found it. I think I'd left the, the flop house place at like nine 30 in the morning, walked around in Mexico, came back. I think I got back to it at 1130 at night and I was walking the whole time. So yeah, I was pretty much busted with tiredness. So Golly. Were you? I came back. Were you scared at any part of this trip, or were you just so defiant? Uh, I was defiant. I was pretty, you know, PO'd and just like, I'll show you because I was yeah. a stubborn kid, you know, just like yeah. stubborn as a brick. And I think the the main time I got scared was because he had sent me money a couple times, and I went to because back then you the only place you could send money was Western Union, mm-hmm. and they had a Western Union right in the bus station, and so I went to the bus station to get money. And then start walking back to the hotel. These guys started following me. There's like two guys out of the bus station. They look kind of sketchy. And so I like noticed that they were following me and I like turn and they turn down the same street. And I was like, okay, I'm going to turn down one more street. And, you know, that'll prove to me because I knew, you know, they were probably saw me get money or something. They're going to jack me. And I turned down one more street and sure enough, they turned with me and I was just like walking, like, oh, I'm looking at the sites, you know, sketchy area of El Paso. I got to the next street and I just beat feet, boom, just took off, you know, like I was on the 50 yard line or something like that, <laughs> just running and just went down as many streets as I could. And I could hear them start running as soon as they realized, you know, that I'd like taken off. And then I got to, as I recall, this is a long time ago, but I got to a, a place where there was an abandoned old car, threw myself underneath it and just laid there and they never came near the car. I thought I thought the next thing was gonna happen was they were gonna come walk by the car and just like drag me out. 
they didn't. I I probably stayed underneath there for like two hours because I was so sketched out and scared, you know, just like laying their stock still and then eventually got out and went back to went back to the hotel. So that was kind of a, a fun moment. I deserved it though. I was a little pumped. I was driving them crazy. <laughs> I would have That's stuck me on it. And it's the best story that I've had in my life. So from this from this point of view, it's very wildest valid. story for sure. <laughs> Jeez. So do you remember what it was like when you got back home? I actually, my mom wisely sent me back to my grandparents who lived down in Oceanside, not too far from us in California. And I stayed there and it was very close to Christmas, I believe. I think it was almost the Christmas season. So I stayed there uh, with them until they had like a holiday gathering. And I think I went back to my parents and, you know, we kind of butted heads for a while, but we're best friends now. My dad is definitely my best friend. Uh, other than my best best friend that I've known since I was 14. We get along really, really well. So did your relationship change, uh, I guess, what, when you were in like your late 20s or something, when you yeah, started really exactly. realizing? Yeah, you I started realizing. Know everything? Yeah, my, yeah, my dad totally came through for me and helped me out at a time that when I was just at a very low point in my life, didn't know what the heck I was going to do, and he kind of gave me the wherewithal to continue on for a while. And it gave me time to just grow up and snap out of it. It's like, and from that moment on, I was like, I never want to depend on anybody ever, you know, just not because, you know, he was shaming me or anything like that, but just because I was like, I need to stand on my own two feet. Kid, the males in our family grow up about when they're like 25 to 26. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's what we all wait for. We're like, yeah, 25, 26, you know, he'll kind of get his head out and he'll start, start doing normal human stuff. But that's kind of a, that's kind of a brewer thing. I think I was born like 55. So I, yeah, I, I, I know I people out. like that. My sister. And that's the thing. It's only the males in my family. Cause my, my older sister, I think she was like, in her 40s when she was in high school graduated early <laughs> uh was managing a restaurant by the time you know a couple of years later just you know uh, went on with her life but yeah us uh men we kind of have a hard time growing up as i've seen <laughs> apparently the gene's been passed on to my own son so <laughs> was there any sibling rivalry uh when you were growing up like any contention uh, with your brother or sister no nah, my young my brother was he was 10 years younger than me and about oh, I think, like seven years younger than even my younger sister and seven or eight years. And so it's not like you could have that much rivalry with him. You'd be arguing like a toddler basically. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, with my sisters, you know, we'd fight all the time and, and uh, then they get tired of it. And then they both collectively sit on me and I had extreme, it doesn't sound like that bad, but I had extreme claustrophobia when I was a kid. So I'd like amp out and just like, twitching because I was so so like going into convulsions practically because they were sitting on me but you know I probably again I probably deserved good good for them <laughs> oh gosh so you eventually grew out of being claustrophobic yeah I did I actually had to train myself out of it and I've had a couple things in life like that I had to train myself out of I had, used to have extreme fear of heights and I used to be really claustrophobic and the way I train myself out of being claustrophobic was I would crawl underneath my bed and just sit with the mattress, like about an inch above my face and, and kind of just got out of it for after a while. 
Yeah, like exposure therapy sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's exposure therapy. And I forced myself to do it. I forced myself to do that. I trained myself out of being tickled because I didn't like being tickled. So I'm not ticklish anymore. <laughs> oh my gosh. So have you ever asked anybody for help or do you just grind it out on your own? Like pretty much. I usually, I used to grind my it out on my own, but now I'm happy to say that I think I have the wisdom now to, I can ask for help. But that took decades and decades of life to where I could ask for help, even for simple stuff, even at work, you know, like, you know, you guys, I mean, you were way more technically, I, I was a security guard before I came to work UCS. I knew nothing about, you know, computers whatsoever, other than like barely how to put one together. But, you know, you guys, you and James helped me out big time, you know, kind of gave me all the the secrets and stuff. And then I went on from there, but it was very difficult even as recently as that. And heck, uh, 2000, I was 37 years old. So, you know, that's how long it took me to get to where I could even ask people for help. But now, yeah, if I need something, Hey, can you help me buddy? Cause, cause I've learned that the response of people to just asking for help is almost never negative. And for that re same reason, I think, I think it's uh, going back to what we were talking about as tags. I think it's the, one of the reasons, number one, I believe that all humans are good people. You know, most of the people, not everybody, but most of the people that I've met in life have a good nature, a good heart. But I also think that it makes them feel good. It's part of our human nature that if you help somebody, it, it's how you tag yourself. You say, wow, I helped that person. So mm -hmm. I must be a good person. Not exactly true. It just means your action was, was good at that moment. You know, you go punch a kitten in the next minute. You're not a good person. <laughs> but, uh, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of kittens, so no punching kittens whatsoever. But, uh, uh, you know, it's just how they tag themselves. And so I've learned over the years that the, the easiest way to get help from anyone is just to ask for it. And most people are just, they'll trip over themselves trying to help you if you just express that you need help. So Yeah, I'm I definitely in the same boat. And it took me... Uh, until I was in my thirties to probably be able to ask for help. I don't know why, why it took me so long, but I had to, I had to do everything myself. I had to prove myself, you know, it's like, I don't need anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. I don't need anybody. Yeah. It's all those tags. I think too, you know, it's like, it's just those tags messing with our heads, Greg, we got to get away from those tags because it's like, we're tagging ourselves. I need help. So I'm a helpless person or, you know, I'm a bad person because I need help. And that's just, not the way that any of us should live, but it's, it's hard being human. <laughs> well, part of that for me was ego, like, uh, oh, yeah, me yeah. to that. Like I, I needed yeah. to be the smart guy that didn't need anybody else, you know? And exactly. I've since, uh, sloughed those shackles off and, yes. you know, like I, like I have no ego associated with that kind it's, of stuff anymore. Hubris or it's like, yeah, I, it's, I'm happy to be the dumbest guy in the room. It's exactly. And it's so freeing to do that because, you know, ego just, again, it just holds you down, binds you, it anchors you, you know, but yes, it gives you a sense of purpose and that, Hey, I can handle things or something, but it also does the opposite. It anchors you to your spot. You know, you can't grow. Like you said, I mean, uh, the best thing to be, and I don't remember who said it is you want to be the dumbest person in the room because then you have a potential of learning something. It's like I always used to tell my kids, teaching them chess, you want to have the other person be better than you because that's how you're improved. 
you don't want to be playing somebody that you're just going to beat them all the time because you're not going to learn anything. Yeah. I certainly don't want to get grounded in the ground every day, you know, beat down, but, uh, but <laughs> I do, I do like to lose. Uh, like it doesn't, it doesn't bother me the way it used to because I genuinely have learned to enjoy the things I'm doing along yeah. the way, as opposed to just having to show everybody else that I am important or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very I can't good, control yeah. what they think or what they feel. Yeah. What did uh, RuPaul Charles said? Your opinion of me is none of my business. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that was like a really liberating thought. Like I genuinely don't have to care, not only not care what they think, but it's honestly none of my business what you think of me. No, I'll try no. and be a good human day to day. I'll try and be kind where I can and help when I can. And because really, yeah, you just—I mean, pretty much any of us and whatever whoever said each man is an island unto himself. But you know, we're all the main person that we're answerable to in any wise is ourself. It's just you know, can you look yourself in the mirror? How, what do you think about yourself? Um, I, you know, I know that you've heard that for me, I think that was maybe the last, one of the last conversations we had direct, direct, uh, via text, because, you know, we, I've been through some very hard times mm-hmm. with, uh, my sons and, but, and although I wish that that hadn't, they hadn't made the choices that led to that for me, I'm glad that it happened. I would have punched myself in the face if I knew that I was going to be saying that three years ago or four short years ago, but I really am glad that it happened because it taught me something and led me to something that has dramatically changed my life and has dramatically altered kind of my view of just living. And that was stoicism. And and it really, uh, you know, it's kind of like one of those being burnt, burnt on your hand because you, you know, to get to a hospital and then you find out you have cancer or something. Hmm. You know, that's a horrible analogy, probably stupid, but, but it was something like that. It was like, you know, I went to it and found it because of their problems. And then I found, once I found it, that I had a bunch of problems within myself that needed to be corrected. But kind of my reaction to their situation was like a symptom of this deeper problem that I had which was trying to control things for the people in my life. I was a huge control freak. I was like, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to, you know, especially when they're kids, and, you know, to a certain extent into adulthood, I'm going to move it out of your way. You don't have to do anything. That's not, that's not helpful. <laughs> and it's a way to make yourself, it's a way to make yourself unhappy. Let's say like control, whenever you feel like you're in control of things, it's not so scary. Right. Because yeah, exactly. I've, I've got the controls and, you know, exactly. like I'm the I'm still the same way, but I've never really been a control freak, but I need a plan. Like, mm-hmm. I, I just don't want to feel completely out of control. So it's sort of I don't necessarily need to be fully in control, but I don't want to be fully out of control. So as long as exactly. there's a plan or I know that some things in motion, I feel better about it. But um, nope. what you were talking about with your son and that analogy, that mm-hmm. is um that's very real for me too. So, you know, like I, my wife went to the hospital. I, you, you probably remember some yeah, that. And I remember she yeah. almost didn't come out. And, um, I felt like when I came out, like everything, like everything changed in an instant, you know what I mean? Everything was just so different for me. And 
Uh, I, look I could at, tell by how you referenced that when we briefly spoke about it. You were like, yeah, yeah it was like, you know, light going on or something. Yeah, I mean, like I was going, I was going down. So like, you're talking about technical things. Like I was getting certifications, and you know, mm -hmm. there's this Mount Everest of certifications at the time with the CCIE, and I yeah. had studied for nine months and passed the written portion. Then I needed to go do the lab, and that was going to be another chunk of time. And I had just passed the written. She went to the hospital and came out, and I never touched the certification again because it yeah. just it didn't matter. It was like, yeah, do I really exactly. want to lock myself away from yeah. these people and do it's like just everything changed in an instant. And it really, and I still look at the world as most people are, uh, you know, just sleepwalking. They're just going through the motions. They're sleepwalking through life, and it takes some major occurrence to snap them out. And you know, so yeah. every now and then, there's somebody like you that's woken up, you know, one of those kindred spirits, and it it never comes easy. You never yeah. get there because of something, you know, you, like you said, like, uh, you get a new kitten, you don't wake up because <laughs> you got that, you know what I mean? It's, it's something traumatic shocks you sure. out of that. You know, you're Neo, yeah. you wake up in the matrix, you know, you are liberated uh, from that. Nietzsche, I don't I'm not sure if it's Nietzsche or one of the other existentialists that came up with it, but they call that an existential crisis is, and they believe that that's what causes people to become existentialists from like say other philosophies or just from everyday walks of life is something so so tragic and dramatic happens to them that it drives them to the fact that they've lost the meaning in their lives and then they see that life well if you believe that philosophy that life has no meaning except what you give it what you make of it and uh, there's another guy that read his book and to be honest oh mankind search for meaning and i don't the guy's name escapes me right now but he's it it's a gentleman that he was a psychologist or psychiatrist before he went into the nazi concentration camps and he went through the normal horrible experiences that was for all the uh poor people that were in it and one of the but he was a big observationist as well and one of the things that the experience taught him, and he put it into the book and into a section of psychology that I believe still exists today, it's called uh, Logoism, is that the people that had a personal meaning for their life, they were more likely to survive the horrible conditions, even if that uh, meaning for themselves was like unrealistic, like uh, he described the uh, one of the inmates might be saying, might keep saying, you know, I'm going to see my, I, I'm, I'm only trying to get through this so I can see my wife again. You know, even when like, there's probably no hope that he was ever going to see his wife again. But he said that he notices those people, anybody that had a personal meaning in their life, that they survived and they endured better than the people that, you know, had lost that sense of meaning. And so when he got out, he actually wrote this book and established this, a uh, new version of psychotherapy. And I believe that's what they're, they're they attempt to do in it is uh, when people, instead of going, you know, the, the Freudian or Jungian uh, method of trying to analyze the person, they try to analyze that person's sense of meaning about their lives and hmm. find, help them, help them find that sense of meaning again, that, you know, possibly they've lost. And, to be honest, that's what happened with my sons. I kind of had 
stacked a lot of meaning into that I was going to create, I was going to be a perfect father and I was going to create this perfect life for them because I was going to do nothing wrong and I was going to move everything out of the way and everything was going to be great. And then kind of the wheels came off the cart because, you know, everybody's an individual person and they're going to do what they did, just like I did you know, when I was 14. I'm sure my dad was like, you know, Brian's going to go to school every day and he's going to go into college and he's going to be a scientist or something like that. But I had my own ideas about that. Well, my son had their own ideas, but the problem was that I had stacked so much of my meaning into their lives, not into my own lives, that it really, I think, exists or became an existential crisis. And I really went through a very dark period of depression because of that and until I kind of formed my own meaning after that and said, you know, I need to form a meaning that's outside of them. Do you feel like you put a lot of expectations on them and where they would go and what they would oh, do? For certain. Yeah, for certain. And that's not always, you know, that's not always fair as well. Yeah. You know, they're, do you think they felt people? It? Uh, to be honest, I think they did probably, you know, I think especially with, uh, uh, my older son, Dylan, you know, I think that he felt that, you know, I was kind of like, I had my own ideas about what he was going to be or what he was going to do. And, you know, he kind of had his own ideas. You know, I'm sure he's got regrets, and just like I have regrets. I've had regrets and kind of had spent a lot of years, like I said, self-educating myself and stuff that I completely missed the boat on during school. That a, a funny story to do with that is uh, what led to my <laughs> re-educating myself. I had two good friends out in California, Jim and Kathy. And this was back in the day when the game of Trivial Pursuit was first out, it was hot, you know, like a board game. And uh, everybody was playing it. And so Jim and Kathy, I was playing with them uh, at this uh, house that Jim and I lived in. And I was probably, I must have been like early 20s at this time. And we were playing and uh, Kathy speaks Japanese, uh, but... Uh, neither here nor there, but one of the, one of the trivial pursuit questions was, and she goes, Oh, you guys aren't going to get this one. It lays it down. It's, it's what, what is the meaning of the word kamikaze, uh, which in Japanese is divine wind. And you know, I rattled off a little bit of the history and stuff. And then, <laughs> and so, you know, Jim's jaw just like dropped when I, when I said that, and he's like, wow, I didn't know you knew that or whatever. And then he laid down the next one was his math question. This is what it was. What is two to the power of two? Two squared. Yeah, it's four, four. right? Yeah. yeah. A, a child knows that. I did not have the slightest idea what that, what that was <laughs> or what that meant. I didn't have the slightest idea. What, and Jim's like, Jim's like completely incredulous. He's like, he's like, are you kidding me, man? You know what kamikaze means? You don't know what two squared is? And it, you know, gave me this sheet feeling of like shame and embarrassment. And huh. I was, and at that point I really started realizing, yeah, my, you know, my greatly vaunted uh, self-education that came from these mainly fiction books that I've read throughout my life and, you know, some information that my dad taught, but uh, you know, it was, there was huge gaps in that education. And so a while after that, I decided to go back to school. I never completed a degree, but I really, 
uh, ate a lot of lack of knowledge for quite a while. <laughs> but, and that was uh, in your that was in your twenties where you decided, hey, I got to start reeducating myself. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was deliberate. It was you know, and part of it again was that I ran into so many life troubles because I not so much for lack of education, but from lack of discipline and the lack of being able to discipline myself about anything went into the, I often tell people I was in the military. Yeah, I was in the military. I was in the air force reserves did horribly uh, because I couldn't show up. <laughs> you know, they, they kind of expect you to show up, right? When you're in the military, they expect you to like actually, you know, be there. And I was kind of not into that. You know? I'm just going to go to the beach or whatever. So it's one of those things they frown upon. I see. Yeah, finally they put me on inactive reserve and I just drifted around, dead end job to dead end job. And then I legitimately remember realizing I need to educate myself because this is not this is not getting me <laughs> again at twenty five or twenty six probably at that time. So and then and you had developed a discipline to actually educate yourself because that's I mean that had yeah. to, well I mean one you probably felt like you were eating crow doing that and then two it's really boring. Sometimes I found it. Yeah, back. I just I, I think I had just such a light neon fire desire to know for knowledge. And I think I still do. Uh, I love to learn. I still love to learn. Mm. I, if I had, had Wikipedia back then, I would have been all over that. It's still one of my favorite sites. But but, uh, you know, I, I just was on fire with wanting to know. And so I kind of actually wrote down like a like a kind of life missive that, you know, I'm going to be an intellectual, not like somebody that's the creative type, which I was probably before then, you know, like, well, I draw, man, I can read, eventually I'll write something. So that's and, uh, interesting. Deviated me. Yeah. So, it's like, we're all just like pool balls getting whacked around the table. Other pool balls hit us and send us off in directions. Yeah. So we never yeah. thought we'd go in. So. Or sometimes, you know, you're the cue ball. And you don't necessarily have to smack somebody entirely the wrong direction, uh, but you can give them a gentle nudge. And then exactly. a decade later, man, they're in a better place. I love the idea. Exactly. That's, that's the, to me, that must be the magic of being like, uh, I would love to have been a teacher and be one of those ones that, you know, like kids come back 20 years later and say, Hey, you know, I know I was silent Bob back then didn't act like I was listening to you, but you seriously changed my life. I love that uh, Richard Dreyfuss movie. It's an old one, uh, Mr. Holland's Opus, hmm. where he's he wants to be a, uh, a uh, not a conductor, but somebody that writes orchestra music, uh, a composer. He dreamed that he was a composer. He would uh, was always working on this grand uh, composition, but he had to pay the bills, so he went to be a school teacher and he became a band teacher and the movie follows him through years and years and years until finally he's like retiring almost in despair. And then they have like a going away celebration for him. And the auditorium just fills with all the kids that he had influenced over the years. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's very moving at the end. And, and one of the speakers says, you know, we're the music of your life and something mm -hmm. like that, you know, like you said, to be able to affect somebody in that way is, got to be a really powerful thing and i'm sure teachers do that all the time i know mine did even though i probably pissed them off <laughs> <laughs> do you think about your legacy every now and then what you're going to leave behind how people remember you i don't 
really do that so much anymore. And there's a poem that I read one time and the author escapes me. It's like a romantic poem from, uh, it's English, but probably from like the 1800s or something like that. But it's called Elegy Written in a Country uh, Churchyard. And a country churchyard in the poem is where everybody's buried. And so the author goes through all these different people and just saying, you know, what, uh, what power they had, what importance they had, what wealth they had, et cetera. And then he basically says all paths lead to the grave, like the death is the great equalizer and that nobody remembers these people. And so to a certain extent, I kind of feel that way, you know, that, that I'm just going to fade and that nothing that I do is going to be remembered. And that doesn't bother me though anymore. And the reason it doesn't bother me is just, uh, I came up with an idea a while back that, that, we're writing the stories of our lives, like each person's individual story. It's like you write a book or something. And at the end of your life, you close that book. That book's done. It gets put up on the shelf and uh, pretty soon it's covered with dust and nobody remembers it. You know, a hundred years from now, uh, you know, my favorite author, I quote him all the time, Stephen King, but you know, a hundred years from now, probably nobody will even remember who Stephen King is or, you know, some of the lesser popular novelist uh, like Charles Dickens. You know, we barely remember him, hmm. but the, so you take your life and you, you're done writing and you close that book and put it up on the shelf and it fills with dust. And, you know, people you knew that you knew you directly, they bring it down and go, Oh, look at this book that was written. And they flip through it and they're all nostalgic and everything, but eventually nobody remembers you. And the book just sits there and just, but the thing that gave me comfort in that is that, Nobody can unwrite that book. That book was written. It's written forever. Nobody can change the fact that it's happened, even though nobody remembers it. And so when I realized that, then I kind of stopped thinking about, you know, what legacy I'm going to leave for the world or how I'm going to be remembered because the universe will remember me, you know, whatever existence remembers me. I could never be unmade. I was always here. But as far as, you know, my legacy being, you know, my sons, obviously my sons are part of me and they'll go on mm-hmm. and their sons, et cetera. But, and that's kind of a legacy, but I kind of look at it as just the fullness of my life. And when it's done that I'm just, I'm going to be no more, but I was, I, I will be no more, but I always was, I guess that's my answer to a legacy. Mm. Kind of makes me think of that scene in, um, Shawshank Redemption, uh, uh, Morgan my Freeman. Favorite movie number one. Favorite it's one movie. Of, it's probably mine too. Shawshank Redemption, where uh, Morgan mm-hmm. Freeman he goes into that halfway house after he gets out of prison, yeah. and he looks up at the at the tie. Brooks was here. Brooks yeah. was here. Yeah. It's gone, yeah. not forgotten. The right then people car- will always see it. And he carves underneath it. So was red. Then he, yeah. you know, thanks to Andy, he heads him down the freeway. And, you know, goes on to the different kind of life that was waiting for him. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I love that movie. What a what a state statement is. It is by Stephen King. A lot, mm-hmm. not a, a lot of people know that that it's based on a Stephen King novella. But but uh, the the movie is substantially different than the book. Yeah, than the novella. And, the, yeah, and actually, sure. the guy that did it, I think Frank Darabont or something like that. Uh, he actually approved it. I thought 
it's the movie is I was quite a say, bit better. This is the one Stephen King uh, adaptation that I thought mm-hmm. was better than the written story. Like yeah, probably the only exactly, movie. yeah, it was for so sure. Amazingly done. Green Mile is a great, uh, great movie. But if you read the book and then you see the movie, it's almost identical. Like it's a great interpretation of the book, but it doesn't improve on it, but it doesn't take anything away. All the rest of the ones that have been made of its novels and stuff, with the exception of Ed, I liked the part one and two. I thought they did a really good job on that. Mm. But I think that they like at least take away a little bit. But Shawshank, yeah, is the only one that they like raise it up from what it was. And it just becomes such a powerful statement about hope and just not giving up and not surrendering. Yeah. And it still stands like today. Yeah. Like I got my 15 oh, yeah. year old yeah. to watch it within, within the last 12 months. And he thought it was yeah, phenomenal. It's, yeah. It's timeless. It's just one of those timeless mm-hmm. messages that, you know, all, all of us as humans without labels can, can mm-hmm. understand because all of us hope and all of us you know want things for ourselves or, and all of us have that little, seed inside of us that mm-hmm. does not allow us to give up no matter how dark the circumstances yeah well while we were talking about legacy it made me think how i um i used to wonder how people were going to remember me right you know that was part of me mm-hmm. like that ego piece like wanting to be yeah. special and important and things yeah. like that and i've learned that i think much like you nobody's gonna remember me probably mm-hmm. a year or two after i'm dead i won't you know what do they say like person dies twice you know once when they you know go in the grave once, then a second once time. for real and then in memory yeah once they find right. yeah. and i'm okay with that i think yeah. my legacy is gonna be um how i change the people around me right either through right. thoughts feelings caring mm-hmm. um and so it's just gonna be you know me slowly changing the world by touching a person here or there um, and you know, not in the Catholic precepts, but you know, yeah, like emotionally, it's, per- yeah. it's perfectly valid too, because <laughs> it's like that person, like you were, like you said, you were the cue ball that edged that person. Who knows what would have happened to that person? And also, uh, this is probably I'm not a Buddhist, but from a Buddhist perspective, is that Buddha, Buddhists believe that one of the highest things that you could do is absorb harm into yourself without like spreading it out. Like you get <laughs> whacked by the people cue ball going 500 miles an hour and it hurts you don't go out and yell at that person you know and you're the other ball that smacks into them and does something harmful to them but in your point of view you do something good to them and that can never be undone that you just like that book you can never unwrite that you did that and that could completely change the person change the world uh bragging on my dad my uh I never knew this. This type of guy my dad was is, is uh, my cousin. My my cousin was going through a very very dangerous time in his life. Uh, I think there was some substance abuse and just mm. uh, probably possible, you know, uh, aberrant behavior that might have landed him someplace he didn't want to go. And my dad heard about it and went to him and said. If you chose one place, if you could get out of here uh, and go one place, where would you go? And my cousin knew some people in Hawaii that had moved there recently or something like that. He had friends in Hawaii. My dad bought him a one-way plane ticket, gave him some money. And and uh, that was probably, I don't know, it's probably 30-odd years ago. 
my dad didn't mention it to me once. My cousin had to tell me about it years later. And, you know, that uh, he describes it as that saved my life. That changed my life. And that was the major cue ball there. You know, and it doesn't have to be something dramatic like that. It can just be like, hey, hold the door open for this person. And maybe they get through the second door three seconds before the building blows up or something. You know, you don't think about it that way, but those chains of events that you create through good action have to, I would think have to lead gradually towards good as a society, as a, as the big swimming pool that we're all swimming around in. It's called the world and not, and negative is the opposite. So that's mm. uh, very, it's very difficult to do the opposite. So it's very difficult to have the bad happen to you and not express it to other people. I used to be a big flame out, anger person and just you know not not punch somebody or something like that but you know i would just go around with a chip on my shoulder if something had happened to me and i try not to do that anymore so you're very reactionary yes very reactionary yeah not necessarily that person but almost like passing it on that's that's not a good, good way to be it's not a good way to be for your life and it's not a good way to be for the world would you know that that's what you were doing though were you even um, aware of it at the time? I would because I think I would because I I restrained myself. You know, I kept myself on a tight leash. Just again, that control thing. I kept myself on a tight leash, and everybody was like, "Oh, Brian's always you know mild mannered, and, you know, always in control." Until eventually, that uh, as my poor wife found out multiple times that until that like little pressure valve you know blew off the side of the kettle and. And steam comes boiling out. Mm. Just, you know, I was act, act a fool. You know, as some people say, I showed my whole ass. <laughs> I just said, act like an idiot. I, I kind of, stoicism has helped me with that in that I no longer see that I have control over those things. And so it's uh, that I don't have control causes me to not seek control. So. So tell me a little bit about stoicism. I'm I'm honestly pretty ignorant of it. I know you had mentioned it before this. Call. I was. I didn't want to look it up too much because I wanted to hear. What no, you I understand. It's it's an old Greek philosophy, and you'll probably have all these people write to you. Yeah, Brian doesn't know what the hell he's talking about or something. But uh, from thousands of years ago, and it existed uh, for hundreds of years, and it it was after the death of Socrates uh, and Plato. Platonism, which is uh, Plato's school that uh, he was a student of Socrates. Um, philosophy in Greece split into multiple uh, multiple aspects, and one of them was Stoicism. And Stoicism, one of its primary beliefs, they have what's called the dichotomy of control. And what they believe is that everything in the world is divided into two things, things that you can personally control and things that you cannot control. And the list of things that you cannot control is tremendously broad. The things that you do control is very, very limited. But from a philosophical point or even a rational point, it's very easy to like explain it to somebody. And the thing that they that they uh, that they say that you control are only your internal thoughts, your attempted actions, and what you wish to pursue and what you wish to avoid. And it doesn't even control like the thing, like you actually avoiding or pursuing those things. And so everybody, 
the the thing that people have the hardest time with as far as stoicism is when they say, well, you don't even have control over your body. Your own body is not in control. No. Ah, I, I can raise my arm. I got it under my control. No. <laughs> but what the the uh, the misunderstanding is that they don't understand what they mean by control in stoicism, and the stoicism version of control is absolute control. That no one can stop you from doing that thing ever. It's something that belongs to you. Like uh, I'm going to stop you, Greg, from thinking about a ham sandwich. How am I going to do that? You could think about a ham sandwich all day. I can beat you. I could threaten you. I could, if I was a horrible person, I could behead you. That would think that would cause you to not think about a ham sandwich. Yeah, obviously. Fair enough. But that's the thing is that's what they believe is it's something that is only stoppable by death, by your death. And so you can think about what you want. Well, I've got control over my body. Then why do you get sick? Okay. Think yourself out of getting sick. You don't have control over your body. Uh, your actions. The reason that they say your intended actions is because even your actions aren't necessarily under that absolute control. Like uh, if you're, you, you want to help someone, you want to go over and give them a sandwich, but, and you could see them, that person's starving. I've got a sandwich right here. I'm going to go over there and give it to them. Wait, I'm in a jail cell. I can't go over there and give it to them. Hmm. But my intended action would be to go over and give that person that sandwich. And so your intended action is under your control, but the action itself is not under your control. And obviously the list of stuff that you do not control is infinite and the rest of the known universe outside yourself. So, you know, like that includes other people. You just can't control what other people do. Somebody honks at me in traffic, that person's having a bad day. I can't stop them from honking. I could try to influence them. Maybe I'm not saying that you can't influence people. Sure. You know, you can say, don't walk over that manhole cover that's missing, or you're going to fall down into the street. You might influence that person, but that person could just keep on walking and fall into that thing no matter what you do, and your best efforts might come to naught. And, and so what it does when you meditate on that enough is you kind of relinquish control over all those things, and you stop worrying about things that you don't control, and you kind of, once you accept that within yourself, you don't have as much stress on yourself. At least that's how it worked for me. And when I decided that I could not control my sons, could not control their destiny, could not co control their future, sure, I can talk to them and I can try to influence them, but I don't have any direct control over their actions or what their lives are or even what happens to them. And when I realized that, really, it took a while. It took years for it to actually set in to where I knew it like rock solid. Then it just made me a more peaceful person. A lot of that anger went away because a lot of that anger was... When you talked about having a switch or a control, this switch isn't working right now. And when I look back on it and think about all those early years that I spent doing stuff like that, I always have the funny analogy that, that um, you know, those little plastic cars that toddlers are in, not the ones that are electric, but the ones that you oh, just push them around. Like in. a cozy coop. And, yeah, and they've got the little steering wheel on it, right? Yeah. And the toddler's sitting there, and he's going, on <laughs> steering, but they're not actually doing anything because the steering is not controlling the car at all. The car is just controlled by the person that's pushing it. But you think that you're steering it. And so that's how I look back on myself and all the things I tried to control in my life before that and, and just realize that, you know, yes, you can influence things. Yes, you can do good actions, but 
you do not have control of those people. You do not have mm. control of those actions. And so you don't fault yourself. I didn't do that. I wasn't able to save this person. Well, that's because you don't have absolute control in saving them. You know, God or the universe did not give that to you. But what did it give it to you? It gave to you your thoughts, your internal thoughts. And one of those thoughts is your perception of things. And you can look at things and either think, that's the most horrible thing that ever happened to me. Or you can look at that thing and say, it just happened. And that's kind of how I look back on that stuff now. I don't sit there and go, oh, this is horrible and it's terrible. And why did it happen to me? And woe is me. And I'm going to be mad at everybody. And I'm going to take my anger out on the world. I just say, it just happened. You know, it's just mm -hmm. one of those things. So well, it's, I, think, it's, I think every parent is somewhat codependent. Like with the oh, children, right? At very, least, very, very. That's for a while, yes. right? Like your very, your yes. happiness is predicated on theirs. And exactly. I, I, I think, I honestly think that's like an inborn evolutionary thing to make sure mm -hmm. that we, you know, keep them alive. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Exactly, exactly. Uh, just like how like kids, you know, like that 14-year-old you is really selfish, you know, because yeah. I think mm -hmm. evolutionary, we had to make sure that we got enough sustenance, you know, we had... Yeah protection you know we would take yeah. take take so that we would survive and so you know i think some of those things are just hardwired into us and outside of our control uh, and i wish i had to quote but uh, a psychologist that i saw one time he he actually gave me a sheet of paper one time and it was on the roles of a parent it basically was how the roles change as your children get older mm. and i don't remember what it was but it was something like up until you know maybe like 12 or 13 you're their provider you're you take care of everything for them you're there to, to give them sustenance as you say to you know basically point them the right direction to tell them what to do what not to do and it was something like beyond that when they get into their teens you become like a coach like okay you know, let me tell you how to do this and stuff and then eventually you get to a point where you become just like a mentor that they can, you know, reference, but you know, you only go to a mentor if you really have a problem that you can't handle. And then beyond that, even beyond that in life, you just become another person, to, you know, yeah. a friend, a good person that they could talk to. That's the best thing that you could do for them. And I, I don't know if I'm in that mode yet. I, maybe I'm in mentor mode still with my sons. I'm not sure, but I definitely, and looking forward to the point when I'll just be a friend to them, you know, that we could just like hang out and talk and, you know, just like I would with anybody else. Yeah. I'm having this problem, Greg, what are you going to, I need your, you to listen and not yeah. like, judge me or something. Like yeah, that. for sure. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, and also, you know, you kind of mentioned, um, you know, like, uh, you know, as your kids aged a little bit, I wondered how much that kind of impacted your ability to kind of, uh, let go of control as you see them, you know, take the stick on the airplane and start, you know, really being able to handle it. You know, did that, I guess, would, do you think that was kind of what really helped you sort of let go and let uh, Jesus take the wheel? To, to be honest, I didn't let Jesus take the wheel until about three or four years ago. And so I was like, <laughs> I, you know, I'm a lot, as I described, I mean, I had my son's late life, uh, Let's see, uh, was, I was 34 when my first one was born, and 37 when my second one was born. So I was already getting up there, but you know, you're talking now like 54 or something like that. I'm still not letting 
Jesus take over. He's in the driver's seat, but I'm like reaching <laughs> over. Like, let me get, let me take the wheel. Uh, I tell you one thing that really was a, a negative motivating factor, though, and was fear. It was that they were going to face the same things that I did. I think that's a you know in any parent's life that's huge that they're going to run into the same problems. Like you know I. I ran into problems because I didn't do well in school. Well, let's make sure that they do well in school. And so they don't face the same problems that I did. Uh, I was totally unprepared for what it's like to have responsibilities and work and stuff. Well, let's make sure that we do that for them. And I didn't realize that that's not up to me any more than it was up to my father. You know, you could just do your best job. See, you know, and there's, there's (laughs) my wife is the, antithesis to that argument because she was one of those uh, i don't know if you know this but she's eight years younger than me and so i was 26 coming back to southern california off of working kind of living a ski bum's life at a ski resort working swing lift chairs and met her ran her ran into her at a nightclub she was 18 and when i met her at first i was afraid that she wouldn't like me because i was eight years older than her (laughs) and then after that i rapidly started thinking wow this girl's really mature (laughs) (laughs) so you know uh, you would think that i would have had to wait for her to grow up but in a huge fashion she had to wait for me to grow up basically Mm -hmm. so you know kind of i did sometimes but then other times no (laughs) Well, I guess you guys started dating so young that um, you really did a lot of growing up together, huh? Oh, oh, for sure. Yeah, we faced a lot of obstacles together, just uh, both you know, bad things and good things. We've had a lot of positive stuff happen as well, but uh, you know, it's been definitely a, a journey. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it, man. So, you know, like when you describe stoicism, it sounds depressing. Like, you know, I mean, just like the idea that like, oh, I'm, I'm out in the middle of this body of water. I can't see anything around me. I guess I'll just uh-huh. go swimming because it's out of my control. I'm just going to, but it's not like, to me, yeah. it sounds like, cause that was sort of my initial impression. Like if nothing yeah. matters, then, you know, I like the idea of uh, you talking about you defining what your existence is. Like, why am I here? Yeah. You know? So you get to pick the rules. This is. You know, like we did the fantasy restaurant earlier. It's like, I mean, this is your fantasy life. You know, you define what the rules are and uh, what your desired outcome is. And you can <laughs> choose to pursue that. And in stoicism, the idea of, um, and let me see if I can pair it back. The, the idea of understanding that things are out of your control and come to terms <laughs> with that. And uh, I guess making peace with it. And here's one of the, I probably missed this part. And here's one of the most important things of it. And what I, when I think about it, I think, I kind of think of it as the uh, glass half full principle is, you know, you've heard the old saw of is the glass half empty? Is the glass half full? I say it's always full because the other half is, it's full of air. Oxygen. Yeah, oxygen. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, The scientific perspective that would be, but you know, the, Going back to the water thing, you know, is it half full or half empty? It's the exact same physical situation. But the one thing that changes is your perception of what that situation is. And that's what stoicism says is entirely in your control. So Mm -hmm. it gives you that power. It says that no matter what the situation is, you can always think of it the way that you want to. 
a man could be a king in a prison cell if you think about it that way. Hmm. And one of the most interesting things about the history of Stoicism is two of its greatest teachers. One was a former slave, and the other was the emperor of the Roman Empire. So it kind of gives you an idea of the wide range of people that Stoicism would be valuable to. But that's one of the things, just like Buddhism, that uh, people kind of get the idea, well, if you can't control anything, well, that, that leads to apathy. You're not going to do anything. You're just going to sit there. Well, one of the one of the other things that they have in Stoicism is they say the only good is virtue. And what they mean by that is that good actions are the only good that you can do. And so in your in your example of if you're out in the middle of the ocean, you just go, well, I'm just going to give up. Well, is that the most virtuous thing to do? Well, if I give up, then I'm not going to suffer. Well, that's one view of virtue, but maybe there's a view of virtue that says, if I survive, I can still help other people. Mm. And if I don't, if I just give up, and just drown myself right here. Well, all those people that I'm going to help for the next 50 years are going to be unhelped. And so the virtuous mm. thing is actually to just try to get myself out of this water. I might not make it because that's not my control, but at least I can make the effort. And so that's kind of how they do. They really go big on what the virtues are and defining them. And you kind of have to fit that to your situation as to what actions you're going to attempt, not successfully do or not do. That's not really up to you, but you can attempt them. That's always up to you. I like that. And I, you know, it's, it's, Almost no decisions are life or death, right? Like if I mm -hmm. decide to do this, I'm going to live. If I decide to do that, yeah. I'm going to die. That's not really yeah. what it comes down to. And I no. like the idea of, wow, oh, that's such a good way of looking at it. That, you know. Virtue, and virtue is just an incredibly virtue. complicated subject too. Yeah. So the more you think about it, the devil, as they say, is in the details. Yeah. So, and, it, and failure is not fatal. No. You know, in no, most scenarios, right? Yeah, so, that's a great saying. Yeah. Failure with good is virtue, not fatal you're attempting to do the right thing. You're going to try your best because it, you know, ultimately could have a positive outcome and is the right thing to do. And so you're chasing that thing. It's the use. It's the best use of like what you do have in your control, which is your thoughts, you know, like try to think the right things and then your attempted actions, try to do the right things. And then it comes down to, well, I would say, I would like to give this person a sandwich. I don't have a sandwich. I'm starving myself, so I cannot give them anything. <laughs> well, you know, does that remove, does that remove the fact that I was trying to be virtuous? No, it just means that the success of that action is not up to you because you didn't have a sandwich to do it. But instead, I'm going to sit there and talk to them and try to distract them and make them feel like they're not hungry. And then we walk together and try to get something to eat. Well, that's kind of up to me. And that succeeds because I don't have, need a sandwich for it. I just need my big mouth and I'll just blabber on at it. <laughs> so what do your kids think about uh, your views on stoicism and all that? They kind of get tired of hearing about it. <laughs> <laughs> sort of a yeah. mantra. Yeah, they know. You know it's, uh, I've tried to, you know, like kind of give them advice, stoic advice. And one of my sons actually told me, he said, you know, that's not helpful. And I realized huh. that it was not helpful because it's not, again, it's that mountain. It's the two different perceptions of people in two different places. And maybe, mm. you know, the Buddhists have that saying that, and I'm not calling myself master of anything, 
but the the uh, the Buddhists have that saying: when the student is ready, the master will appear. And it just means that, and I think that the intent of what it means is that the master was always there, but you weren't ready to see him there yet. You weren't ready to hear that lesson. You know, I was ready to hear that lesson about, well, you need to probably educate yourself. I wasn't able to hear that lesson until I got to my 20s. And boy, I could hear hear it then, loud and clear. You know, but it was always there. My dad was probably shouting it back when I was 15, but (laughs) uh, I was not listening to it. I was listening to the waves at the beach. I always tell people that I spent so little time in my, I went to two high schools, but my second high school, Huntington Beach High School, I spent so little time there that I always tell, that I always tell people that my high school that I went to was lifeguard tower number three by the pier because I spent far more time down at the beach than I ever did in my actual <laughs> high school. So Which, now that you've got roughly 40 years on that kid that went to El Paso, mm-hmm. like knowing where you were and where you are now, is there anything that you, Brian, today could say to that 14-year-old that you think would have changed anything for him? I don't think so. And that's the thing. I think that I'm not trying to be fatalistic. I'm just saying that a lot of times it's so based on your perspective that it's difficult. And we need to remember that when we talk to people that don't hold our, our personal opinion, mm-hmm. that it might not even be that that person, if that, if you both have the same life experiences, that person might totally understand what you're saying about mm-hmm. and share the same opinion. But how are you going to get over that? That person's done tons of different things in their life that you have never experienced or vice versa. You have done things in your life that they've never experienced. And it led to your perspective. Again, looking at that mountain that sees the coastal green side, not the desert side, like they're looking at, mm-hmm. and you're trying to, magically move them over to your side of the mountain and the difficulty in doing that is they don't have all those perceptions and stuff and that boy back then didn't have all my perceptions you know from his point of view he was right because he was thinking about it who am i to go back there and tell him that he was wrong when i yes i shared his experience but he hasn't shared mine through all these Mm -hmm. years since then and yeah i don't think i could convince him squad other yeah we like the both like the beach i still like the beach i still like waves you know yeah tasty waves out there aren't they oh yeah (laughs) mr weirdo talking to me i don't even recognize (laughs) him (laughs) so you know i could probably talk to him about commonalities and that's why that's what i frequently encourage people is is if you're talking to somebody that has a personal opinion that's totally antithetical to your personal opinion or something you're just button heads you know you're a, one person's a trump supporter and the other's a dyed wool you know liberal from the 60s uh democrat or something like that you know this is just an analogy i'm not trying to be political but okay you know you guys are button heads about that why don't you pull out a picture of your kids talk mm-hmm. about your kids sit there for five minutes talking about your kids i don't care what age you are and you show a picture of your kids and the other guy goes oh wow that's really cute you completely forgot about that thing that you know you were so irritated about and finding commonalities like that that you can discuss that aren't argumentative between the two of you can really lead to understanding between two people mm. and you know like grandparents boy they might be you know 
really totally different backgrounds or something, but you get them to talk about their grandkids and they're going to have a huge base of commonality. Mm. Oh yeah. I love my grandkid when he comes over. <laughs> I think that's a fantastic point. Like if you have two people that, you know, like, like you said, like opposing, like just, you know, viciously opposing political views, mm -hmm. I bet they have millions of things in common, like so oh, many yeah. more things exactly. in common than exactly. not, you know, that yeah. I think they but would agree on more things than they disagree on, but yeah, but they're emphasizing the things that they disagree yeah. on without seeing the commonality. And that's just, that's common to humans. Again, that, that black and white thing, but there's some things that we tend to black and white because we think that they're important to us. And we forget about the commonalities, all those shades of grays that yeah. overlap us. And I just wanted to brag that, uh, uh, on your podcast that, uh, uh, Dylan, my oldest son, is got a baby coming in June, so that's going to be my first grandchild. Oh my goodness! Yeah, so life's <laughs> going to change yet again. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what your grandson's going to think about all of your stoicism conversations. Yeah, the only thing I told him was I, I told his his parents I said that this kid is going to get read to so much he's going to think Grandpa doesn't know how to do anything else. <laughs> Read and maybe take them on walks. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's fantastic. Congratulations, man. Thanks. All right, bud. Well, we are getting pretty close to the end here. Yeah. So I want to be respectful for your time. But um, I wanted to, I always like to, to open it up right here at the end. If you wanted people to interact with you, right? People listening, people out on the internet, how would you have them do that? What's your, uh, what's your preferred method? You can say not at uh, all. That's also an option. <laughs> not at all. Leave me alone. I'm not a big, you know, which uh, my Facebook account obviously puts the lie to that because I blabber mouth on that. But I'm not a big social media person and I don't have a website. But uh, anybody wants to chit chat about something, they can easily send me uh, an email at brianscottbrewer at gmail.com. I will certainly reply back. They tell me to shut up or they can say, you don't know what you're talking about when it comes to stoicism. But, I'll probably yeah. agree. You know, I'm, well, just, uh, I'm a I Padawan learner still. So. <laughs> no, for sure. And I think there's no hard and fast rules. Like uh, pretty much everything in life is uh, negotiable. It's malleable. And it's like we said, perception. Like my, yeah. this is how I perceive this thing to be. So Exactly. I, exactly. I think, I think your interpretation is just as valid as the next person, especially if it brings you hope, peace, happiness, any of those things. And I that's the thing. And that's the thing. Who's going to argue with, you know, the fact that's to me, that shows the value of it is that maybe I have a learner's understanding of it, but it's still very useful to me, you know? So, uh, that to me is great utility, something that, you know, you might not know how a hammer, uh, you might not know how a hammer is manufactured. You don't know who made it. You don't know what its history is, but you can sure pound a nail with it if it works. And that's what I'm doing. I'm just pounding my nails with stoicism. <laughs> <laughs> all right man well thank you for being open and honest and um man i have a Thanks lot of really good and it was great a lot up. of really good notes brother so uh i'm gonna go over here i'm gonna click stop and i'll be